This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Janflon, and today we're going to talk about Thomas Jefferson, trafficker, rapist, or gentleman. Or all of the above, or one, or both. Yeah, this is this is one that I think Seth, you and I have been talking about doing from the minute we discussed having a podcast. Um, because I think it's something that gets brought up a lot when we're talking about trafficking, well, human trafficking and the history of slavery within the United States. I think a lot of times slavery is condensed into the plantation slavery that existed and the antebellum South prior just to the Civil War. And so we don't actually think of the history of slavery that existed prior to that. So sort of the, the transatlantic slavery that existed before America was even founded and then continued um, during the early years of sort of the U.S.'s formation. And we don't talk about that, really. We talk about trafficking or the abolition movement in the U.S. so much. I think it's just we focus on the final form that slavery took before it was legally outlawed. And then we look at the ramifications that followed slavery becoming illegal while still a deep racial divide existed in the United States. But we don't talk about sort of the role the founding fathers played in slavery and how slavery was conceptualized in the U.S., at least. Well, and to look at the high-level aspect of this before getting into the weeds of it, there is an age-old controversy that goes back to the time of Jefferson, where he was accused of having sexual relations and children with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. Mm Mm-hmm. And because of recent DNA testing, a report concluded that there was a high probability that Thomas Jefferson fathered one or more of Sally Hemings' children. Now, people have drawn different conclusions from that. Some have said, well, it's it's been said and it's true and that's that others have wanted to quantify it and find other versions of it and then there can be claims of revisionism from both sides we'll talk a little bit more about that but jj and i coming from backgrounds where we value methodology and certainty recognize that this is not something that is 100 percent certain so we are not going to assume that is it is 100% certain. However, this is going to frame the larger discussion of Thomas Jefferson as a slaveholder and as somebody who could be representative of people back then that might have sexual relations with slaves and what does that mean? So maybe 
one of the best ways to kind of start us off on a flat playing field is to discuss that of the first, I believe, seven presidents that the United States had, five of them owned slaves and owned actually a substantial number of slaves. And that owning, and this is starts with George Washington and extends down to Thomas Jefferson and beyond, and that owning slaves at that time, if you were a man of means, so if you were an educated, wealthy elite, owning some slaves or owning slaves and or having people as indentured servants in your household was not a super weird thing. Um, it certainly wasn't something where you were going to get called out on the street for behaving unethically because you were doing something that was legal and considered pretty normative. What you do have, though, developing, interestingly, I think this is so interesting, that just around the time of the Declaration of Independence is being formed and the U.S. is deciding to engage in war with Great Britain, is finally we start having these wide conversations in the street amongst elites of is it right to own slaves period and if it isn't right to own slaves how do we account for these people within our constitution how do we account for these people in the new sort of world or new sort of government that we're building in this though it's very still gendered we're talking about men so adult male slaves having then the right to either their freedom or sort of participation in civil society. Women are still separate from this, whether they're white women or black women. They are still outside of sort of this sphere of concern. So when we're talking about the Founding Fathers, and in particular Thomas Jefferson owning slaves, we're not sort of contesting whether or not his right to slaves was legal, it was at the time, and we're not contesting whether his right to have slaves was ethical or moral. I think Seth and I have become pretty clear that we abhor slavery in any form, and so, and I would even say that American history has kind of proven it to be um, a truly terrible thing that happened and continues to happen. So we're not arguing whether or not it was okay that Thomas Jefferson had slaves. It wasn't okay, but it was socially acceptable. And of the slaves that he had, that a woman slave would be considered even more property than a man is considered pretty normal of the time and of the type of slavery that was practiced in the US, where you do have a tier system with men at the top, women at the bottom, and a tier system of race with whites at the top and blacks at the bottom. And so to be both black and female is to be doubly marginalized. There is one point I want to make about Thomas Jefferson as a slaver. Mm -hmm. I named the episode Trafficker? Question mark. Is he a trafficker? Now, to get back into definitions, trafficking, modern trafficking, is an illegal act. Being a slaveholder in the United States was a legal act, a form of legal property. Illegal property, such as trafficking, is not legal ownership, and even if you think of it as buying and selling, people are not slaves their entire life, usually, with trafficking. Yeah. 
So it's different in that way. But when we start talking about what does trafficking mean, and when we talk about traffickers, and we talk about sex traffickers, we think of them as really bad people. And they are. They're doing despicable acts. But by using the word trafficking, even though they're not the same thing, in some ways they are the same thing. They're both despicable. And so Thomas Jefferson and some of our other founding fathers, well, in one respect, I see them as really great men. And I am glad for the form of government. I am glad for the, the foundation that they laid. I'm respectful of Thomas Jefferson that he at least wrestled with how do we deal with race relations and should we still have slavery? However, I also abhor him for having over 100 slaves, but he had slaves. And there are people who don't like this whole Sally Hemings controversy because they think we're imputing bad things and making our founding fathers less character. I question his character because he had slaves. And I do not give him a pass just because he wrote down intellectual ideas about doing away with it. Because even though George Washington said he would release his slaves after his wife Martha died and she decided, you know, I think I'll play it safe and free them after George dies. And even though Thomas Jefferson said this isn't a good thing and we should do away with it, they didn't do away with it. And lots of people did not stand up to slavery. And despite the many quotes from founding fathers saying that slavery is bad, words, lots of words, and they're not meaningless words, but ultimately their actions were not sufficient and... I'm not okay with Thomas Jefferson having slaves, and I question his character on this count. Yeah, I think it was... I mean, I'm, I, Seth and I both have sort of a former teacher and a mentor who's the, the head of the Human Trafficking Center at the University of Denver, uh, Professor Claude Destray. And I remember one of the first things I ever heard from him in class was, put your money where your rhetoric is which is to say that you can make all the impassioned speeches in the world, but if you don't go out there and then show with your purchasing power, show with your sort of elite status as being someone who's educated or moderately wealthy, if you don't go out in the world and actively pursue change, then what you're saying is essentially a Hallmark greeting card. It's, it's not super helpful in the long term. And Hallmark, please don't sue me. I have no money. So, and I also think too, part of, part of what you brought up there, Seth, is something that needs to be touched on when we're having this conversation about Sally Hemings, the person who is now a historical figure because of her ties to Thomas Jefferson and sort of this debate of if she did have children with Thomas Jefferson or another male member of his family, were those children consensual and could they even be consensual? Can you, as a slave, consent to sex with someone who is a master or holds a power dynamic above you? But when we talk about Sally Hemings, you see a lot of people who, who mention her as this woman who's brought up to ruin the great memory of Thomas Jefferson. 
And what's happening with that is we are seeing the constant conflation of women who are used for sex as the agents of sort of a demoralizing or sinful practice. So that it's it's the woman's fault that a man has engaged in buying sex or forcing sex from her. It's the woman's presence that has brought on this sinful behavior and it's the forced acknowledgement of the woman that has raised not accountability, but how, how to phrase this, that the fact that the woman exists and is mentioning the fact that sex has occurred is destroying a great man. And it's not that the great man went out and either bought sex or forced sex. It's that the woman was there for it to happen. And this sort of blaming and skewed accountability we see happen a lot in rhetoric surrounding, well, the commercial sex trade, but also sex trafficking in general in the US, which is, well, had it's victim blaming. Had these women not engaged in certain behaviors, they wouldn't have been vulnerable to trafficking or they wouldn't have been appealing to traffickers or buyers. And that's super irresponsible on behalf of the public and on behalf of kind of scholars who have inadvertently or not pushed this particular narrative. And it's super harmful, one, to just women in general, but also to people, because then it says that men cannot be accountable for things. And that's not fair to men. Well, and with slaves, men had sex with female slaves. It happened a lot. They had children, and then the children would also be slaves. Because slavery in the U.S. was tied to the race of the mother, not the race of the father, interestingly. It gets difficult knowing, you know, when you talk about founding fathers who had sex with whom, and that's not our concern here primarily. It's more, like, like J.J. said, what, what is consent can there be consent? What is rape? And so with that, we'll get into the story of Sally Hemings. Which, like all things involving real people, is complicated. Why is it complicated? Yeah, true. Yeah, well, a lot of times these narratives get reduced to, like, a nice, clean paragraph that seems very clear. And in reality, that's not how things are in trafficking. Or in anything, but particularly in trafficking, which involves a lot of kind of contextual and situational events. Not the least of which that many slaves didn't write and that their stories were not that detailed. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't that much we officially know about Sally Hemings' life, especially compared to Thomas Jefferson. Yes. But what do we know about Sally Hemings, JJ? We know that Sally Hemings was a female slave that had been present um, at Monticello and had been owned by the Jefferson family um, from the time of her youth. I don't think we actually know how old she was at various times. What we do know are kind of, I think, two key points that in 1997, 
Um, blood was compared from the five descendants of Field Jefferson, Thomas's paternal uncle, and with the blood of the descendants of Sally Hemings, who were named Thomas Woodson and then the Carr family, more broadly. When the results were tested, they showed a match between the Y chromosomes of the Field Jefferson descendants and the Eston Heming descendant, which proved, it provided at the time for what was an, uh, able to be proved via DNA testing in the late 90s, that Thomas Jefferson or another male of his family had fathered at least one of Sally Heming's children. And the chances that this match happened by coincidence were less than 0.1%. So it was a pretty clear examination. When it comes, so we kind of have this back, or so I say this future life of Sally Hemings. So long after Sally Hemings has passed away, this is the legacy that she leaves behind through her children, this sort of shaky paternity. What we know about Sally Hemings when she was alive, as abuse and stuff, is pretty limited. Uh, but what we do know, um, so she was the youngest of six siblings, so she had other children available to her. She herself was mixed race, uh, three quarters European and one quarter African. And that one quarter, so that remaining portion of her, made her um, still a slave because her mother had been a slave. So that's how the sort of long paternity rolls down. She had, however, been technically a half-sibling of Jefferson's wife, Martha Skelton. What we know about Sally's movements in her life is pretty limited. She became a, a slave to the Jeffersons as part of the dowry that came from Martha Skelton. And that when she was 14, or around 14 in 1787, she went with Jefferson's youngest daughter, uh, Mary, to London and then Paris, uh, and spent two years there living with Jefferson and Jefferson's youngest daughter. Now, once in France, Sally Hemings could have been freed because France did not have slavery at the time. And so all she would have had to do is basically go outside and leave, run away. And this is used by a lot of historians to say that if, even at the age of 14, Jefferson would have been 44 at this time, she engaged in a sexual relationship with Jefferson, that it was fully consensual because she was not sort of in the status of slave she could have left. I question that because what is it to be 14 years old in a country where you don't speak the language to just leave? To leave when you have, if you've been a house servant your whole life or um, a sort of ladies maid or attendant, what marketable skills do you have compared to the average French woman of your age that will get you a position? In the and late that, 18th century. Yeah, in the late 18th century. And to what degree do you feel that you have agency and you feel like you can make a choice and you feel like you can leave when you yourself have grown up knowing that you're a half sibling to the master's daughter, when you've grown up in a system where your mother has borne children to a white man, had children, those children have remained slaves, and then you have now transitioned into your half-sister's household 
and are staying with technically by blood your brother-in-law to what degree do you actually know that you have the choice to leave and it's never been very clear to me that sally hemmings or any of the other servants that accompanied them to england and france knew that had they left the household they would have been freed that's never been really established to me. It's not that there were posters everywhere telling you of your rights. A lot of times, and this happens a lot in sort of abolition circles, we have this presupposition that people are operating all with the same amount of perfect knowledge, that they know what's legal, that they know what's illegal, that they know what's against their rights, that they know all of the options available to them. And really, it's very rare. <laughs> for people to always have the best information about sort of their life and what's permitted to them. I think just think of your friends who tell you crazy stories about their landlord. And when you tell them, well, that's illegal, they can't do that. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> that happens to me on the regular, talking to highly educated like doctoral candidates who don't know what is and isn't permissible in the state of Colorado for a landlord to do. Mm -hmm. So what do you expect a 14-year-old slave to know about her right to freedom? Ellen, in this one article that's pretty well sourced by John Smith, under the Sally Hemings heading, he says that Jefferson and two of his daughters, along with James and Sally Hemings, James being a brother, went back to Virginia and that Jefferson had promised James his freedom if he trained his brother Peter in culinary expertise and that he promised Sally that he would free her children if she returned. Now, if that's true, uh, it's nice if he did offer that, but that also could be called coercive. And it also would say that, well, if she has family back there, that gives her a re another reason to return, to be with her brother and, and if there were any other siblings or family back at Monticello. And then just leading to one of the things that's incited, again, to sort of maybe Sally Hemings' social mobility was that she was paid $2 a month while working in France, whereas the Parisian sort of servants that Jefferson had brought in were paid $2.50 a month. Just because you're paid doesn't mean you're not a slave. This is the thing we talk about a lot when we talk about debt bondage. If you are paid, but you have no mobility, you are still a slave. I know that this makes things sort of complicated for people, but if you are paid, but have no mobility or choice, you are still a slave. That... Sally Hemings' children eventually were trained as artisans and never worked in a field, and that were freed upon, I believe it was either her death or Jefferson's death. Fact check me if you like. That, that all of her children were freed and were trained as artisans, and that some of those children, because of the position they had of being actually predominantly Caucasian, that a few entered actually into white society as adults. 
Uh, three of the four actually entered into white society as adults, and the descendants of those three later on identified as white. Suggests to a lot of historians who take the position that Jefferson was not sort of a rapist or did not take advantage of this position he had as a slave owner because these rewards sort of came down the line. And by rewards, I mean not just the legal freedom that was granted to them, but also sort of the freedom to then move into white society and take a position. Just because things ended up, quote unquote, working out for the children and working out for Sally Hemings, who was eventually freed, it was upon Jefferson's death, uh, Sally Hemings was eventually freed, doesn't mean that it was okay or that the conditions that led up to it were not in some way abusive. It just means that things didn't end as terribly as they could have. So in looking at her age and the age she might have been when she had children and may have gotten pregnant with Thomas Jefferson or somebody else, not only is it likely she was younger than 18, but she may have been younger than 16. Yeah, it looks like it's 14 to 16 is when they say taken from the household accounts because any of her children were considered property (laughs) that she was around the age of 14 to 16. So then that gets another interesting dynamic. And to look at one of the other candidates for her children, and before getting to the candidates, it is not guaranteed that the same father sired all of her six or more children. One Mm -hmm. of the potentials is Randolph Jefferson, as this article says, his younger and less brilliant brother. In that case, it might have been that Randolph raped Sally Hemings. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll unpack that shortly. But the, the age part is interesting on multiple levels, especially if we're talking about a 40-ish year old man along with somebody who is like 14 or 15. Now, th- this gets to an interesting topic worldwide now. Now, throughout history... The age of consent is not the same age Mm -hmm. that parents can sign off even now below 18, that in other countries now marriage can happen under 18 as a norm, and that our Western norm of 18 is not universal now, and going back a couple hundred years, things were different then as well. I want to link to a few different articles. One of them I'm going to link to is the case against Thomas Jefferson, a trial analysis of the evidence on paternity. These people wrote books against the whole Sally Hemings connection, and this particular person is said to be an attorney and looks at it very closely to make it not clear. And so I'll link to that. And and that's fine. But there's another article on the site by somebody else where they say that because Thomas Jefferson believed in some sort of moral equality of blacks with non-blacks, how could he be a racist? Mm -hmm. So then that makes me wonder about their certain bias. But again, it's not 100% sure, but some Jefferson or more than one Jefferson had children through Sally Hemings. So, rape. 
What can you tell us about rape back in the late 1700s, JJ? Yeah, so rape in the late 1700s is, again, a sort of interesting thing in that it differs very much from the legality of rape or how we sort of think about the legality of rape or illegality there, you know, in sort of modern times. So for one, rape doesn't happen, speaking, speaking of rape in this time period, rape doesn't happen to men. <laughs> rape is an action that is done by men to women, for, for starters. So just boom, right off the bat there. And I could not find any really strong cases or even mentions of rape happening to children. So molestation is not a thing that happens. There's allusions to it, sort of the violence is being done to children by particular members, but it's not very clear. So, rape is a thing that happens to adult female women. Boom. All right. So, of that rape that happens, if the rape happens between social equals, so let's say a poor white sharecropper, male sharecropper, rapes a poor white female. What happens generally is some sort of, if a civil trial does proceed, some sort of punishment, you know, thrown on the on the man. Generally, a, a prison term and or some sort of fine. If there is an unequal power dynamic, so say a rich man, a rich elite, a lawyer, rapes a poor white sharecropper's daughter then what you tend to see is actually not jail time for the elite member, but instead um, a very heavy fine that is paid from that elite to the victim or the victim's family to compensate for the loss of this woman's now ability to marry or her loss of virginity. So giving a payment that is sort of commensurate with what she would have gotten for a dowry. You also do see in some cases a it's not legally mandated that the raper that the attacker marry the victim or that the victim marry the attacker but it is suggested of a sort of social way to avoid the fallout for either one of them because bear in mind that while it's certainly at that time quite bad to be known as a rapist it is actually worse to be known as a sort of loose woman or woman who's sexually experienced so in many cases, you don't have rape being reported, and in cases where you do have rape being reported, it's generally either a, an elite woman who was reporting that it was done to her by a very lower class man who committed severe violence to her, in which case, when it, the power dynamic is reversed in that way, the lower class man is generally uh, given either life in prison or castration. But if it is an elite man and a poor woman, it's generally the family is hoping for marriage or at least a payment. You also see if this elite thing is reversed. So if it is someone who maybe is similarly on the socioeconomic scale, but not considered legally the same. So if you have a poor white woman who was raped by a black slave, what you see is immediate uh, castration and or lynching. Of, of the black man who's engaged in this violence. You never see ever a black female slave bringing allegations of rape against an elite man. Now, the reason for that, 
on the slave end is that as slaves were considered property, slaves were considered a thing that could not be raped. They were an object. And your furniture cannot be raped. Oddly enough, your furniture apparently can commit rape. Slaves, black men were shown as these sort of boogeymen who would were hypersexualized and would rape white women if given the opportunity. And so you see that brought in court cases ultimately always always ending with the with the death of the man accused. But what you don't see is a mention of women accusing slave slave women having the option to accuse elites or even other slaves of of rape. It's just not legally an option available to you. And I would like to point out that part of the reason why this might be true is something, and I'm going to quote directly here from Elizabeth Adabetta, uh, her out of the University of Chicago. Her article will be cited here if you guys want to read it in full. It's really good. But talking about the role of Hemings and Jefferson, the type of rhetoric that aims to portray Sally Hemings as a willful participant in sexual relations with her slave master instead of a victim of psychological, emotional, and sexual exploitation is directly related to the rhetoric that paints black women as promiscuous sexual deviants. And this is also something that you see when you start trying to look at law or start looking at court cases from this time period or sort of letters. You come across repeated mentions by white women talking amongst each other that black female slaves are exceptionally promiscuous and will try to force or entice masters or, or white elites to have sex with them. And it's this sort of painting of then black people in general in the US as these sexual deviants, hypersexualized people. Black men will force people to have sex with them. Black women want people to have sex with them. They never say no because they always want sex and they always want sex in a very sort of big performative way. And this rhetoric or this painting of a hypersexualized black body is a narrative that has continued in US consciousness. That's not gone. I mean, that hasn't gone the way of the dodo. You still see this in sort of racist rhetoric throughout the US. So when we're talking about rape as an act of sexual violence, legally Thomas Jefferson wouldn't have been tried for rape because Sally Hemings was considered someone who, one, couldn't be raped legally because she wasn't a real person, and two, even if she was a person who could have made a charge against rape, the fact that she had black blood meant that there was no possible way that she could have wanted to say no to sex. And that's the body that Sally Hemings has and had to walk around with. And so when we're talking about the choices that she may or may not have had and the choices that were made for her by people like Thomas Jefferson or other men in his family, we can't forget that. That her, the lens through which she viewed the world was very much set by these people around her. Well, and one of the things that I've thought about, where, and this is how it gets really complicated, is how the relationship might have changed. So let's speculate, which because this is one possibility, is that it was one person, that it was one Jefferson 
that sired six or more children. Yeah. So at the first instance where A. Jefferson has sex with slave Sally Hemings, it would be hard for me not to think of that as rape, that there's an initiation of some sort of relationship. They probably knew each other maybe a little. And then there's sex, and then there's a child. Now, there, I read somebody else who said, well, we know that she was raped at least six times. But this is where it can get confusing if the relationship changes, at least in terms of Sally's perspective. Consents, has a child, and maybe is treated not quite as bad, or maybe is in France and comes back, that for a slave trying to exert agency and choice and trying to make the best decisions for her children and for herself, what were the differences between perhaps that initial rape and future sexual relations? And that's where the whole discussion of agency gets muddy. And we don't know what was in Sally's head. We don't know what this relationship looked like. So there's no way I'd be comfortable with it regardless. But it's, yeah, but it's likely Sally tried to do her best within the constraints of her slavery. Thoughts, JJ? I think, so here's, there's a number of complicated issues in here. One is that we're hundreds of years later trying to speak for Sally. Mm-hmm. and to speak for a situation that we can't possibly know about. There's also sort of, I think, this desire. We want to believe that people are inherently good and behave in good and ethical ways. And I think that in part, that's why we get... There's a number of really odd romance novels about Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> if that's if that's your, your deal. Most of them stopped being published in the 1970s. But, you know, if you want to look that up in your spare time and, and engage in that... But to quote directly from a New Yorker article that deals directly with this question, to quote, Gordon Reed knows that the question is important since Jefferson and Hemings are more than people. They're symbols, too. But symbols get you only so far. The romance is not saying that they may have loved one another, Gordon Reed writes. The romance is in thinking that it makes any difference if they did. Because the reality is that we have genetic tests that say these children have Jeffersonian blood within them. So how did that happen? And why is it that we want to make it romantic? Why is it that we want to make it okay? Or, on the flip side, why is it that we want to make it clear-cut sexual violence done to another person end? And that's not really fair to Sally Hemings, the person, but also Sally Hemings, the symbol, and by the symbol, I mean Sally Hemings as a as a figurehead for this idea of female sexual agency within trafficking situations. And can a slave consent? Now, speaking of modern human trafficking law, slaves can consent. And slaves do have limited agency when they are being trafficked to behave in certain ways. Just because your mobility or your work product is contained doesn't mean that your mind is. You make 
thousands of little choices on a, on a daily basis getting through life. The problem is, is that it's your, that big one, that ability to movement, that ability of freedom is constrained or set from you. You don't have a choice in that one. So I think it is fair to say that when we're talking about physical slavery or physical sort of bondage, people do have agency and do make choices to live the best life that they can imagine for themselves within that situation. So taking that dimension, I say Sally Hemings could have engaged in a consensual relationship with Thomas Jefferson, where for her engaging in a romantic relationship is the or a sexual relationship is the best possible choice for her in terms of getting mobility for herself and possible children and ensuring a good survival. When you start to think about though the psychological aspect of slavery and trafficking and how that might position someone to view the choices they have through a very limited lens, that's when it becomes super complicated for me because then it becomes, did Sally Hemings as a woman and a slave, was she able to to think about all of the options she had available to her in an, in an equal way? Or was she conditioned to think that this was the best possible choice for her and her future children? And so it's when you combine those two dimensions that you end up with being forced, at least in my case, I think I end up being forced saying, I don't know. I don't know if Thomas Jefferson was a rapist. But I do know that he engaged in slavery. And I do know that the likelihood of Sally Hemings knowing all of the options available to her, or that should have been available to her, was probably, probably quite limited. But that I can't know. We don't ultimately know, but we can question the idea of how much you can truly consent as a slave. Now, there's a few more interesting angles. The fact that we romanticize it at all, at all in the late 1800s for somebody who is in a state of slavery. I mean, romantic love is not a universal historical norm. It's a pretty modern concept. Even now, it's not universal. Mm-hmm. There's a practical side to marriage of being taken care of, of securing what's best for your children. And so that isn't separate from this conversation. But the other thing is when you're comparing this to trafficking and the fact that based on today's definitions, this is child sex trafficking, at least initially, if it were illegal, but still, Mm. considering who it is and, and her age and everything, child sex trafficking, that we're in the discourse so ready to say that child sex trafficking and and adult sex trafficking is this horrible invasive thing that is the epitome of evil and i don't disagree that it's this really horrible thing and that women are repeatedly raped that will go there all the time as a norm when talking about sex trafficking and it's frankly disgusting that we have the cognitive dissonance to try to romanticize or justify what's essentially child sex trafficking in the late 1800s, especially since it might involve a founding father. That's a huge disconnect, 
and I have a I I have a problem with that. <laughs> Again, I'm laughing because I find it so insane. But we in our country, the United States, we still struggle to come to grips with slavery and that slavery can be a really bad thing and how it could be really bad. How people could be psychologically coerced and have to walk this fine line where they're watching what they say so they don't get beat, being pleasant, being amiable so that they can fit this image that their master has of them, where they have to decide where, what battles do I fight of these very few battles that I can fight. And in fairness, there, there were things that slaves did, such as working slower. And, and so there, there were ways they, quote, fought. But they had this really limited set of choices and they had to choose which ones to which ones to fight and in, in this case we're talking about what's essentially sex trafficking and if it's wrong now it's wrong then and if it's horrible now it's horrible then if we're going to excuse that in the past as being well let's think about her choices well then we should be able to apply that forward as well and recognize that yes modern women or men or boys or girls who are sex trafficked have their limited choices as well, that they're not just pure victims. So just in, and this is one of the reasons we're talking about slavery and we're talking about Sally Hemings is we have to do better at dealing with our cognitive dissonance of being a slave society who is now trying to address modern slavery. And I think the fact that you and I, who technically have degrees in this, <laughs> are having a really hard time talking about it and coming to a clear conclusion or opinion on it just shows that these things are not easy to talk about and they're not easy to even think about or begin to formulate. And that what is probably most important is what can't happen in the case of Sally Hemings, which is listening to people and letting people decide what they'll be labeled as, whether they agree that they're a victim or they agree that they're a survivor or they agree that their position was exploitative or not, that we have a duty as scholars not to be the ones who come in with a labeling sort of stamp, but that we have to listen to people when they say, no, these were choices I made or no, these were things that were forced upon me that the definitions that we have, while helpful, are not all-encompassing. People are different and complicated, and people have the right to kind of set, set what they think they are or sort of self-identify. In the case of Thomas Jefferson, we don't know the condition of every slave under his purview, but he was a slave owner. He had a plantation, and he had household slaves. There was at least one Jefferson who had at least one child with Sally Hemings while she was a slave. And Thomas Jefferson was also a gentleman. Man, it's hard when people are more than one thing, Seth. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, he also created his own version of the Bible. The good parts, I suppose. <laughs> So if you right, wanted that's... a very specific conclusion to all of these, we weren't here to give it, but it, uh, yep. it's, still, 
a complicated story and slavery is still bad. Yeah, sorry guys, if you thought that this was going to be a podcast on human trafficking, we're like, surprise, episode 20, we know how to fix it. <laughs> Here is our listing. That's not going to That's not gonna happen. No, but it's a reminder that we have to do more than Thomas Jefferson did to stop slavery. That probably had an impact. Yes. But, you know, it, he could have done more. Our founding fathers could have done more. You could argue, and people have argued, that if we would have mandated that slavery be illegal, that we wouldn't have had the United States, at least not with all of the states, and may not have won a war. But those are choices. And right now we're speaking words on a podcast. It's easy to speak words. In our defense, once this is published, these words are out there. But it's still not enough to say words. Got to work on policy. Got to try to frame it by going to meetings and so on. Right, JJ? Yep. We won't get into specifics, but JJ just did that. Well, no, I think, I mean, not so specifics, but I think one of one of the things that prompted us to, to do the sort of Sally Hemings topic that we've been bantering around is that recently I've been engaging in, in fighting a few local bills here in Colorado that do deal with sort of the agency of human trafficking victims. And one of the things that I've been bashing my head against the wall is a sort of refusal from the general public to listen to victim statements about what they feel the law needs to be to offer protections to themselves and other people who are in their situations. And this assumption that people are going to listen to survivors because they're not experts, they're just people who have been through this. And so this tendency to not listen to people going through situations about how they self-identify and why they self-identify continues to be a problem. Well, and with that, we will conclude this episode. We hope it's been sufficiently nuanced and that uh, you learned something and can bring something else to the conversation if there's anything you'd like to add let us know at our website speakerfortheliving.com alright thanks again for listening guys and caring alright goodbye folks this has been Speaker for the Living For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.